Hello, listeners. This is Adrian with a short pre-introduction today, because there's two things Matt and I wanted to mention before the episode begins. The first is scheduling. We're releasing this on a Thursday, which is a bit weird for us. Pretty much, we've been releasing an episode a week for the past three months, and Matt and I need a short break. We're still doing the book club episodes in September, but we will have fewer, if any, bonus episodes. In addition, we're releasing this before the Labor Day holiday here in the U.S. to give folks a chance to listen on the road trips or while doing prep for their barbecues. Stay tuned for the third week in September when the post read will drop on the usual Tuesday, and we may have some sort of short bonus episode between then and now, maybe not. Check out a few of our back episodes if you're missing us. The episode with Tobias Buckel is particularly great. Really love that conversation. Secondly, in this episode, we end up talking a lot about gender and have a short section on trans issues. We recognize that listening to three cis people talk about trans issues isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea, no matter how well-meaning we are. Uh, It's only around five minutes and it's all self-contained. So if you want to skip it when you get to hear me talking about it, you can do that. Um, And, you know, regardless, we just wanted to give everyone a heads up. Uh, So, yeah, with that, let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And I'm Ellie. Each month on Spectology, we pick a book, uh, usually a science fiction book, read it, and talk about it. We do so over two episodes. This is our first episode this month for our book, which is Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee. Um, we'll be having a kind of non-spoiler discussion about the book uh, with our guest, Ellie. Uh, she's going to have some interesting things to bring to the conversation. Um, and then in two weeks' time, we will, the three of us, record a post-read episode about the book where we will, you know, spoil it and talk about it more in depth. Here, we kind of give more of a sense of, you know, the context of the book, talk a little bit about it, talk a little bit about the author, talk a little bit about the genre that it exists in, and, you know, talk about kind of some other related things. But, um, yeah, so that's what we do. Uh, Ellie, do you want to introduce yourself? Ellie is a friend of of Matt's and mine from from a long time back. So, we, <laughs> and we thought she had some interesting stuff to say about this particular book. Well, and it's it's fun being on a, a book club podcast since I know you guys mostly through the mechanism of a long running. <laughs> distance only book club Um, (laughs) yeah this this doesn't feel any different than the usual book club (laughs) exactly uh but uh, maybe a little bit more on time (laughs) uh, i'm not even sure that's true that's funny Uh, Uh, maybe shorter maybe i don't know Um, unclear yeah less talking about star wars for an hour instead of the book yeah, that's certainly, particularly when we didn't like the book we read. Um, <laughs> but uh, in my my day job, I support the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, I do a range of strategy, and in particular, uh, I'm a methodologist who specializes in something called wargaming, which will become evident why this book was appealing to me uh, for those of you who have either already read it or for those of you who pick it up. And evident why we would want to uh, have this conversation with Ellie uh, about the book. <laughs> right. I think this is, you know, generally like we, we had Max Gladstone on last month and we've had uh, Tobias Buckel on to be like authors and experts in their field. And so this is also a chance to have like kind of a different expert who's not an author, but an expert in her own right in the topic exactly. that the book is about. And uh, that to me is super fun and interesting. And hopefully we get to, you know, do more of this. And thank you, Ellie, for coming on and agreeing to, you know, do this with us. Of course. Thank you so much. It's great. 
So like I mentioned, the book this month is Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee. Uh, we'll get into book facts in a minute, but I think it's worth saying that um, book facts. this is... <laughs> This is a book that we've uh, mentioned a couple times on the podcast. And so if you might know this, but I've never read it before. I'm about a fifth of the way through it, whereas both Ellie and Matt have like both of you guys have and recommended it to me uh, very strongly. And I'm really digging it so far. It's really fucking cool. So (laughs) I'm really excited by this one. Excellent. uh, It was funny to me. You said I think you texted us uh, a couple days ago to say. Mm That you, how surprised you were after you started reading it that it wasn't uh, more popular because it's so exactly in the wheelhouse of so many science fiction fans, yep, all over America and probably elsewhere. Right. So we're gonna, well, I think gonna, what I particularly said is that you know I, I run this like uh, uh, science fiction subreddit, our print SF shout out, I guess, whatever. Um. <laughs> whatever, no big deal. No big deal. Um, <laughs> I'm casual. <laughs> <laughs> more, like I, I, I was very involved for a long time. I am like less involved with it now. I know we have listeners who 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 are involved though, and I, and I really appreciate that. I just like have been burnt out on Reddit generally. Um, but I'm really surprised given some of the other books we're going to talk about as like being similar books are like Reddit's favorite science fiction books. That this book is not like one of Reddit's new favorite science fiction books. I was really surprised by like how little I would hear about it considering that you know blind spa blind sight and ian banks and the ancillary series are all like so popular on reddit and this kind of like seems to fit like in kind with a lot of those yeah i wouldn't know what's popular on reddit but knowing that those other books are popular on reddit it's almost shocking that this book wouldn't be super well known and loved right and you know maybe 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 this is partially like my own biases because i hadn't read it before so i you know like what what's the name of that effect where like once you learn about something you see it all over the place because like all of a sudden you know it exists um anyway uh some book facts unless ellie were you gonna say something (laughs) no no (laughs) um so nine fox gambit uh nine fox is one word i've been writing it as two words so sorry about that um is a book by yoon ha lee published in 2016 um it's the first of a trilogy the whole trilogy has been published at this point as of i think a a month or two ago um it won the locus and was nominated for the clark the hugo the nebula so it was nominated for all four big science fiction awards is what i think of as the four big ones um it is military it's like a space opera. It's military sci-fi. It's kind of like science fantasy ish. And we're going to talk a lot about like the genre. Um, and then there's a lot of, um, math, a lot of game playing, a lot of colonial themes. It's a non Western sort of future. It's, it's all pretty cool. And, um, the other thing we should mention too is content warnings at this point, because it's, it's violent. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Especially the yeah. first chapter. I, I would say it's a, a sort of divorced violence. It's the type of violence that I associate with like, uh, you know, essays that run in the New York Times describing a war zone type of mm-hmm, violence. Mm-hmm, um, so it's mm. not graphic necessarily. Um, but but you're right that in terms of, of sort of the if you if you think too hard about what's going on the page there there's there's a lot of 
death, destruction, and mayhem involved. All right. Yeah. I actually and, and beyond. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, Matt, you. I've been talking. Well, just uh, be, beyond the violence, there's also some uh, other stuff that folks may have uh, may want to know about beforehand. Some, I would say, mental coercion type stuff mm-hmm. that's you know a little bit hard to describe without giving stuff away in the plot. But yeah, kind of almost similar to Nomon, our last book, there's this sense yeah. of like lack of agency and losing agency and kind of like mind fuckery going around. I don't yeah. have a word for it. It's it's interesting. I, I it's would say there's also quite torture. Yeah, there's, there's also elements. more discussion of if not sexual violence, then sexual coercion. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not in, again not again, not in a graphic way. Um, and you're not living with characters undergoing anything very traumatic, but it is part of the world, um, and and that is talked about, and particularly mm-hmm. um, assault in a military context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the military is maybe the, another thing that, that I would mention. There's a lot. the 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 book deals primarily with people who are in the military, right? Um, so there's and a from lot their of perspective, right. including like the ways in which they like that. Yeah. So there's a lot of, and you know, a lot, a lot of what the book is about is, is dealing with ethical conundra that, that result from people in the military having to deal with the world mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, you know, military mm-hmm. ethics is a, is a major theme. So it's, you know, there, there's, if, if some of those problems are, are really troubling to you and you don't want to read about that, that is a lot of what the book is about. Mm. It's also, uh, I, I think you guys both mentioned the like colonialism aspect of this, which I, have not actually like gotten to yet, um, but I, apparently that's kind of a, a theme as well. Yeah, and I, I should mention it's a theme that comes out much more strongly in the later books. Um, okay. So just for mm. those of you who continue on with the trilogy, um, that's probably a good thing to be aware of. Okay, cool. That's really good mm-hmm. to know. Um, it is like for all of this, like, you know, we're making it sound kind of like grim and removed and like it is, but it's also really fun. It's kind of this weird, interesting thing. This book, does. I'm at least fine, like reading it for the first time. I'm finding it, you know, the, there's there's something very like frenetic about its pace. It moves forward really quickly. It's almost I don't want to call it pulpy because it's really deep, but it has like a fast moving forward moving action adventure type plot especially yeah. compared to maybe some of the like previous few books that we've read <laughs> it, yeah it this is, is a standard yeah. plot in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think ellie was making this point this book is in a lot of ways much more of a standard popular science fiction type of narrative than a lot of mm-hmm. the books that we've done um it fits squarely into the the wheelhouse of a lot of science fiction fans. You know, if you tell, if you tell somebody, Oh, it's a science fiction book. What's it about? Oh, battles in space, you know, pe- people, <laughs> right. people fighting in space about yep. stuff. It's like, yes. Okay. Got it. Done. Right. Yeah. So There's it's space propulsive Marines. narrative. They go on spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a propulsive narrative. I mean, this is, you know, you, you, you would never put a dragon on the cover of this book. You would put a spaceship or a gun. Totally. Totally. <laughs> right. What what is the cover? I, I have the Kindle, so I have no idea what the cover actually is. Uh, it's in fact like. a spaceship. Okay. It is in fact think. many spaceships, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That 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 tracks. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And they're fighting. Yep. Well, I object a little bit insofar as the character's an infantry fighter, not a ship fighter, but 
we can get into interservos rivalries and how they play <laughs> yeah. out in this novel later on. <laughs> that is why you're here. Never, after. <laughs> it's totally why I'm here. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. Uh, so, um, All right, so maybe should, a few more book facts about yeah, Yuna Yeah, well, we should do some author facts, talk about mm-hmm. Yuna Lee. Actually, how would that be? What would the first and last name be there? Would Lee it be? Is, the, is the family name. Okay, okay. So would it be Yunha, the full, like, first name, or would it just be Yun as the first name? I don't know what he prefers. Okay. So in that case, he was born in America and has lived most of his life in America from what I've mm-hmm. gathered. Um, but he has spent uh, a number of years in Korea as well. And so I, and he is Korean American. And so I, I'm not sure what he prefers. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I, uh, I, and I know nothing about the way the Korean language works. So that's sort of like, a. A black box to me, which is, you know, part of part of why we're doing this to, to learn yeah. more about. These I things. do know that on Twitter, Yoon Lee has his name in both English and Korean, mm. which is interesting. So I don't know what, right. you know, this would be a question for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so, right. So Yoon Lee as a science fiction author, this is his debut novel, I believe. But ha- he has been yeah. doing doing he's been writing and publishing short fiction since the late 90s and has been yeah. fairly successful and, with that mm-hmm. yeah and i b- believe he was very well known for or well well known for his short fiction and this was a, a case at the time this was a case of a short fiction author branching out into novels and i think right. that a number of people were were very interested to see how he would do um, right. The novel was, as we've said, very well received. It was shortlisted for all the top awards and won the Locus. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Locus is, a, I like the Locus. They tend to like pick good books. Yeah. So <laughs> that's. Yeah. Um, more facts about Yoon Lee. Born in Texas, lived there a bunch, currently lives in Louisiana. Hmm. Yoon Lee was a math major at Cornell and then went on to get a master's in math education at Stanford. Hmm. Knows a lot of math. Math does come up in his writing. All right, uh, I'm just going to jump yeah. in right now. Nobody, there's no equations in this book. For anybody who's <laughs> uh, getting yes. scared off by the number of times we have talked, there are no charts. Uh, there's no test at the end of it. It's just, you, right. I am a math moron, and I do fine with this book. I, 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 I get excited. That's fair. That's fair. The word it's math not, it's not Neil Stevenson. There are not, like, long digressions about, like, you know, charts and stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the kind... I, I should remember, uh, to me, the word math and, and talking about the math part is a thrilling aspect of this book and is extremely exciting for me. But it is it is math. It is math like Magic the Gathering is math. Well, I and, you know, you keep uh, it's interesting because you keep mentioning math, but that's not how I've been thinking about any of it. Yeah. And it's not yeah, even how it's systemization. talked about. Like it's talked about not even as Magic the Gathering, but as Magic generally like like math is used in this book the same way like spells would be used in a fantasy novel and in fact it reminds me a lot of mathematically based fantasy novels right yeah it's so funny that you guys have had that reaction and certainly we should talk more about the genre um my impression of the book was I, I thought a lot about the way it seemed mathy to me. And I believe the author, uh, Yoon Ali, has talked a lot about how he thinks about writing in large part as a, 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 as a sort of, he, he has used in interviews and, um, and in talks that I've been to the metaphor of mathematical argumentation as a very um, big part of, as a, as a way of describing how he writes. So he has said that I start out with a theorem in mind. When I, when I want to try to write a novel, I start out with a theorem in mind or a thing that I want to prove 
by the construction of the novel, a thing that I want the reader to have in their head by the end that is inescapable. <laughs> and then I construct lemmas step by step to arrive at that. And it's it's so interesting. I, I can see that. And yet I can also totally see what you're talking about. There are no equations in this book. There's not even there's not even there are fewer equations in this book than there are in Binti. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think the way I think about it is it's math as math is about um, systems and logics and the way that what logic you operate under fundamentally changes what's possible and not possible. Mm -hmm. But that's also um, things that are shared in rhetorical logic Mm -hmm. or in um, rule building you know, particularly for games, but not, you know, you use magic as an example, but magic is a really well-known example of a game that actually can't, doesn't have a mathematical solution. Right. Right. And so when we say math, I think sometimes it has this kind of closed form. Mm. Um, Mm. I'm going to strip out anything that doesn't abide by these straightforward sets of rules. Um, Right. But it's it's not not math and it's not that that type of math. It's a much more complicated and yeah. interesting. It's not type even of- called math in the book. It's called calendrical systems, or like it's it's, it's talked about as if it's a calendar. Sometimes. Yeah, it is right. actually called math sometimes. Okay, so that's, for that's example, fair. the main character is talked about as as being a really strong mathematician. That's true. That is true. But but a lot of what the book talks about is not math qua math but rather like what is the timing system used what formation are people like you know engaging with each other in um as opposed to like oh e equals mc squared or, or any of that sort of like there's not a lot of that it's not equations it's sort of like oh man touchy feeling away. i i love this conversation so much <laughs> every i agree with everything you've said and i also think it it was inescapably math from start to finish for me. So th- this is also, you know, some of this is my professional bias. I am a game designer uh, in a in an analytic setting, not in a, a sort of hobby setting. Um, and a lot of people in that field are um, either operations researchers or mathematicians or engineers by mm-hmm. training. And I am mm-hmm. not. I'm a social scientist. And so... I spend a lot of my professional life explaining why the types of thinking that I apply are different than mathematics, but complementary to mathematics. Mm. Uh, and so I think I'm probably sort of oversensitive to math as um, rigid. Mm. Uh, it's about the number that it's about getting to a number, which right. that that is not yeah. what this is. And, and, this and is a conversation think, with my favorite. And to be fair, to be fair, operations researchers are. I would imagine predisposed to getting to a number <laughs> where, where, where somebody that did, um, you know, modern algebra or topology would not be. Perhaps. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. And, and this is definitely, you know, it's the applied math side of the house. Right. Yeah. This is actually interesting, Ellie, because you and I have never talked a lot about this. But, you know, up until I've been doing the political work that I'm doing now, I have largely been a curriculum designer and have you know, done a lot of that teaching computer science to adults using like games that I designed to do that, <laughs> you know, and treat right. treating like curriculum design and game design is more or less the same thing. So uh, it's it's interesting to hear you talking about it in that specific way, because I think they're like you and I have probably a lot of the same kind of biases against calling this math <laughs> that, that we're calling out right yeah. now. For really uh, similar reasons. Right. I, I, I really I really respect and appreciate that. And I think I'd like to say one word about what I think is the place of math. Um, I think the place of math is among all... <laughs> what is so such funny a, about that? It's such a... <laughs> Talk about like theology and metaphysics. <laughs> oh man, 
If I had a theology, the, pla- that's the what place it would be. of um, math in the world. <laughs> no, so uh, I I think um, I, I I really don't like the attitude that I hear sometimes, not from you guys just now, mm-hmm. but in, you know from other folks sometimes, um, that holds that math and quantitative disciplines are somehow uh, locked in a binary struggle with non-quantitative disciplines oh, totally. for the soul of human humanity and the mind of the educator. I think that that is a false dichotomy. I think that the educated person should strive to, I think that the liberal education is a worthy goal that educated people should strive for and that educators should strive to impart. And I think the reason for that is that there is no one discipline that has a monopoly on access to truth and beauty. Uh, math does not. Physics does not. Math plus physics does not. You know, I don't think I think it's really wrong to to approach things and and sort of try to see them only in in one light. So I, I really uh, I, I would hope that I would find myself basically on your side if you were in a in a struggle for the relevance of your discipline, because your discipline is deeply, <laughs> deeply, fundamentally, foundationally relevant to all these questions. And I think it is good. I, I laugh with joy at the, at the ways that we see this book differently, because I'm glad that we do. And I, I, I think it's great. <laughs> Oh, well, I it's think- also true. I'm a political scientist by training, which means that my discipline is just about stealing methods from other disciplines. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we on our good days, we're the great aggregators. And on our bad days, we're rampant thieves who don't know what we're doing with the tools we've stolen. Oh, man. Does this fit into this? Or? <laughs> well, I think to your point, no. too, Matt, um, to, to and to bring it back to the science fictional element a little bit. But I think that's one of the things that's cool about science fiction generally is that it's like a humanities it is it is literature about the hard science and math right like it is it mm. is literally a like ideally like good science fiction and i think this is good science fiction in this particular way is a synthesis between these sort of like hard logical and then like emotional humanistic ways of like looking at the world yeah and I do show that they're more. not different necessarily yeah i couldn't agree more and that's something i love about it right same Cool. Okay. So, um, you know, usually here we talk a little bit about why we chose this book. We've kind of hit on some of that already. Ellie, did you have anything you in particular wanted to say about the book on your own? Um, so, I mean, I think the, the sort of most obvious connection is that, uh, this, this book postulates a very specific thing that, that games, games do in the world, uh, and why they're important both for education and for, and I mean education in like the big sense of education, not mm-hmm. education as in like sitting in a classroom, but in terms of how we learn about the world and how we learn about other people in it. Um, and so to me, um, so uh, taking a step back, gaming in a analytic context is a, is a really widely used methodology, but it's not one that has a lot written about it. And so when reading lists get constructed, people pull on a really diverse set of, of literature because we don't have sort of the standing academic canon you would expect. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's often included in that list is Ender's Game. Yeah. And it makes me completely crazy. Um, <laughs> both because I don't actually like Ender's Game very much, which we can get into later, but more to the point because I don't think Ender's Game does a very good job of describing what games are and what they're useful for. And I think we're setting up just bad expectations when we point to that book. And this book... 
uh, in a really narrow sense, was the corrective I've always wanted to that. And so that's that's this like super small and specific reason. Um, it's also it's a fun book um, that does a lot of things that I don't think get enough airtime. Um, so this is this is a book that is in some ways a very standard military science fiction space opera uh, that is not centered on white men. Mm-hmm. And that is gotten less rare over time, but it is still it's sort of rare to have that happening and to have it happening on as many dimensions as this book is is interested in interrogating who who we should be listening to about what our world should look at like and why. Um, and so and does it while being like just a really fun read like this, this mm-hmm. isn't. This isn't taking your vitamins. This this feels like a great book to read. So. Right. It's interesting because before we started recording, you guys had mentioned some of the ways in which it's like a non or it's a specifically like an East Asian, like far future. Um, and I was saying I hadn't noticed that necessarily. But the more I think about it, the more I like had noticed it. And it it uh, what am I trying to say here exactly it's it's a very interesting way of composing and I I really hesitate to use the word like alien as if like East Asian stuff is so like alien to me or to us as Westerners when it when it's not but at the same time the sense of like because it's not just East Asian it's also East Asian plus other stuff from now all mashed together and put forward by like 10,000 years and all the different like aliens and like life forms and everything else that they have like encountered um, until it does have this feel of like, you know, it, it does what one of the things I just love about good science fiction, which is like creating this entirely self-contained and like, like a culture that makes a lot of sense in itself and that can bring you into that culture. But that is just so wild and different. Um, and that's, that's one of the things I've really been enjoying about this is like, you know, I mean, it may be of all the different like settings of the books that we've read so far. This is probably the most terrifying and the one I'd least want to actually like myself live under. <laughs> but it's also like one of the more fascinating ones, too. That says right, you want to go be an eth- Yeah, you want to go be an ethnographer in this society. You don't want to have to like full time live in it without yeah. an exit strategy. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we've read books with a lot of like, you know, settings I wouldn't want to live in, but this is definitely the one that I least want to live in. I mean, it's one where life is treated as, you know, uh, not even disposable, but just like, you know, uh, effervescent almost. Mm. Hmm. So I, I really like that. And I think that's a good pivot to talk a little bit about the nature, about the, the, the this book's position in the larger area of, yeah. And the larger area of, of military science fiction, or, you know, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people, uh, instantly want to categorize it as military science fiction. And I think for good reason, it it does, it's playing with a lot of other stuff. It's interested in a lot of other themes, colonialism, Mm -hmm. um, the nature of consciousness, um, space opera adventure stuff. Right. Um, and of course the math, you know, uh, the games, math, the nature of these things. But on the surface, if you just took a quick look, you know, the cover has a spaceship battle because it's about a, a spaceship battles. Right. And, <laughs> right. and I mean, it's it about military like, people. Like at the yeah. most basic sense, it's like mill SF. I, I mean, it's yeah. not it's not it's not like yeah. it's even subverting that necessarily. Well, but yes, it's I, doing other things as well. That's what I was that was what I was going into. I mean, I think it's 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 in this area where it is 
you know, you can argue about the extent to which it, it subverts stuff, but it's definitely a reacting against classic military SF sure. um, very deliberately. And it wants to say things about the nature of being in the military and dealing with ethical problems that military people have to deal with um, that maybe other books don't say, maybe they do say, but it has a very strong, I think, thing that it wants to say right. about military ethical problems. Can I, uh, I let me, I'm going to like give my quick piece on this really quickly just to like defend the like not necessarily subverting piece of this. Um, and this is like, granted, I don't, I, I've said before on this podcast, I don't really read military science fiction. I'm not super in touch with it as a subgenre. So this is, you know, with, with, with that as a given, but, um, you know, just because it is like very seriously engaging with military science fiction as a subgenre and like, you know, even disagreeing with other particular books, I still feel like it's, you know, it is engaging with that subgenre and it is a part of that subgenre and of that particular conversation that's going on. And so yeah, totally. And that's a totally. lot of what I mean when I say like it's not necessarily I don't trying disagree to, subvert, with that at all. to subvert it. It's rather like engaging with it fully. It's not trying to be like, well, actually, I'm going to go do my take my toys and play over here. It's rather like really kind of like talking to the same sorts of things, which which I enjoy. So, it, you know, yeah. for me, it's rather than like subverted military science fiction it's military science fiction that i actually want to read <laughs> actually enjoy yeah so ellie what do you think about the place how would you you you, you started talking about this a little bit with regard to ender's game but in more broadly how do you think about this the, the place that this book occupies in the in the broader sf space yeah so i think and this was something we'd wanted to talk about is that in my mind it actually for all that it's it's a very classic sci-fi setting um there's spaceships mm-hmm you go to planets, you see space stations. Um, in some ways, this book resonates more firmly for me as a fantasy novel than it does as a sci-fi novel. And some of that is my own preferences. I actually tend to read more fantasy than I do sci-fi by preference. Um, but I think the way the world is built and the types of conversations that the, that happen in the world um, to me feel like some of the classic beats that you would expect in a fantasy novel. Um, you know, the, the calendrical system we've mentioned gets treated like magic does mm -hmm. in a lot of systems. And the way that you are introduced as the reader to how the system works and what you can and can't do with it is very much the way you get introduced to a magic system when you're entering a new world. And a lot of the world building, um, to me, part of why this feels like such a rich world is because it feels almost like a fantasy world. Um, and mm -hmm. in part because it's not the kind of standard Anglos on spaceships, right? Where yeah. I feel like often military sci-fi just kind of reads in um, <laughs> sort of a whole classic set of, of what the world looks like. And this book doesn't do that. Um, and so to my mind, in some ways, it has, has sort of more similarities on that front. Um, but if you, I mean, you've already said there's obviously the space opera, military, even more specifically, one thing we haven't talked about is the role of gender in this book, mm -hmm. um, which is is quite interested in gender um, and how people interact with with their gender and with their sexuality. Um, and so I think in that way, it's got a lot in common, not just with military sci-fi broadly, but specifically with military sci-fi about female military officers. Um, so that's really interesting. So what do you think, how do you think gender plays into military science fiction, both in general and then in with this book? Because I wouldn't, I mean, 
you know, as a cis white guy, it's, it's sort of my, you know, a lot of my privilege rests in like, I don't have to think about that. It's not pressed into me, you know, but, um, and so I haven't noticed, you know, I, I, I mean, I've read a, a fair amount of, of this stuff and it's, and I bet I can see it if you show me where it is. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, some of it is just that often women aren't in it, right? There, there's a whole lot of kind of classic military sci-fi that is a world entirely populated by men and that you don't see female characters or that female characters are so desexualized um, that mm-hmm. they might as well be male characters. There's nothing... There's nothing about them other than the hairstyle that right. would register. Or there's like the um, one female character and she's like not like other girls kind of thing going on. Right. Or or she is like other girls, right? Going back to Ender's Game where the mm-hmm. one female student is the one who cracks under psychological strain, <laughs> right? Right, right. And the um, only one who cares about the emotions of anyone else there too. <laughs> Plays a very right. traditional kind of role. Yeah. So I, and um, so I grew up uh, my mother's a huge sci-fi fantasy fan and read a lot of, of the sort of, I don't know that early is necessarily the right, right way to explain it, but that, that there were this sort of generation of female sci-fi authors um, that, that came up and were writing about women and were saying, hey, you know, if we can progress thousands of years into the future, it, surely it isn't that crazy to, to have a woman in command of the ship or have the woman be the main character. Um, and so in some ways, a lot of my introduction to sci-fi in general, but also sci-fi that was was changing the sort of norms of what military sci-fi looked like was very centered on on the role of just placing female characters in those spaces and giving them uh, legitimacy to act in those spaces. And so um, this is a book that's that's about one of the main characters is is a female military officer and her gender is treated just as as an important aspect of her personally, but not as something that has any indictment on her ability to do her job. And so in that way, it feels very sort of similar to the work that's being done in some of those earlier books. Mm. So what's the, what are some examples just for, for reference? Um, you know, some of the, some of Anne McCaffrey's more um, military focused stuff, Elizabeth Moon would be another one. Um, I never remember how to pronounce her name, but uh, CJ Cherith. Cherry. It's just Cherry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, would be another one of, of those sort of authors. I would think of that. Um, really? Cause it's a male. A lot of her books, or at least the books I've read actually have like male protagonists. Yeah. There, I think there's a couple that have female protagonists. Um, but I mean, it, yeah, it, it does tend to be a bit of a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, going the other way, the honor Harrington series is sort of one of those classic, uh, female protagonist centric military sci-fi by David Weber. Uh, and now a host of other authors have joined in on that one. Um, Cordelia's Honor by Jules would be another example. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, that's that's one that I've enjoyed a lot. And it, they're um, the Bujold think, novels. Yeah, the Bujold. Um I haven't read all of the Vorkosian books, but um, but that one is really cool. I I think um, it's really interesting for me. I I, I love learning about um, the perspective i have this i have this conversation all the time with my partner um and with other friends of mine there are it's so easy for it's so easy for me to find perspectives that i've never taken on some of these books and of course also books that i've never read in these genres that i like so much um 
and it's just like incredibly satisfying to hear all the stuff that I've missed, which there is like so much of. I had it had literally never occurred to me until you mentioned it how much gender is sort of actually a very important theme in military science fiction in general, just by virtue of the fact that it's such a male dominated space. That fact makes it about gender in this really interesting way. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoy about this book is that there's a really strong definition of military esprit de corps and uh, duty and the value of military service that is not masculinely coded. Hmm. Oh, that's so mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. How how do you how does that work for you? Like, how do you see that? Uh, I mean, so so one sort of obvious example. So of the two main characters, the spy who hangs out with the military a lot is the guy and the woman who is the like hidebound military officer is female uh, right and so that right. that's flipping what's often right. the sort of gendered role expectation there's also but it's just also from just, a oh sorry yeah I, I was gonna say from a language perspective they never use the word brotherhood like there's nope. never there's never this sense of like, you know, like there's so much gendered language around military service, especially in English. I, I obviously don't know in other languages, but that is just like like very purposefully. It feels like not used. Yeah. And and some of it is done by creating alternative words. So, for example, um, instead of of the, the sort of article of you know, the prefix that's attached to people's name has to do with whether they're a military officer or a spy or a diplomat, right? It's the job you're doing um, and it's degendered language, right? And so it then becomes, instead of saying, oh, I'm a military officer, so blah, 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 it it becomes almost like a, a cast identity, right? You're a Kel and therefore there's Kel jokes that are sort of the equivalent of dub marine jokes. And so the way that that gives you space that you don't have necessarily when you have to work within existing kind of archetypes and language use, um, I think is really freeing. Um, there's also just the, I think some of it is the way sexuality is treated, um, and the way that characters, uh, relationship choices are, or are not commented on as being unique. Um, so you hear this quite often in in people who are reading stuff through a sort of interested in queer queer identity and queer representation is that characters in this novel are queer and it's treated as as a as a not as not something that's uh something to note about the character it's simply that the individual they happen to be having a romantic attachment to or a sexual attachment to is of the same gender and so it comes through as being much more just a fact of life rather than something that needs to be monologued about and explained. Mm, that is so interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably still be marinating on this for a while, but just the idea that some, that the idea that a lot of these questions of identity um, are related to military science fiction in particular uh, through some kind of foundational, you know, connection is really, really interesting to me. Um, and it makes me it, it makes me think immediately of another book that I wanted to bring up anyway, which is the the ancillary series by Anne Lickie, which we've mentioned. Um, these are books that are very uh, that are do they're interested in a lot of the same things that that the uh, 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 that Nine Fox Gambit is interested in, um, but they they sort of 
uh, you know, of course, and Lucky is a different person and they, they are different books and they kind of play with the same toys in a different way. But, you know, similarly, they are very interested in questions of they're, they're very interested in portraying a world where um, you can be whoever you want to be. And it, does, it truly, literally, completely does not matter. But at the same time in that world, you know, there, there will still questions about identity don't cease to exist when everybody can be whoever they want to be. Um, how do we engage with these questions in a in an honest and fair way, you know, given a baseline that makes actual sense instead of the baseline we have in the real world? Um, is still a really interesting set of questions. In Anne Leckie's books, in the Ancillary series, one of the things that she's interested in is kind of how multiple consciousnesses interact, possibly in the in 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 a distributed way. Maybe they're distributed over different physical substrata, or they're connected and they're you know sharing physical substrata in some sense. And that is a set of questions that this book, that Nine Fox Gambit and, and the Machineries of Empire books are also interested in a lot. Um, what do you, how have you, is that something that you've been thinking about with re regard to military SF2 or? Uh, so I, I think less so, and this might just be that I, it, you know, you'll notice that the examples I gave of military SF are almost always older series. And it's because I don't actually read much in the genre anymore. And so it might be oh. something I'd be more attuned to going back now. Um, it's certainly something that this book is very interested in. And I think there's an interesting question about the role of gender in these cohabited mental spaces. Um, that's probably mm -hmm. best discussed in the, in the next episode, but I think it sort of tugs on the thread that you're, you're going after here. It is almost interesting to think of, and I, I this is not a complete thought yet. I'm going to have to read more of the book, but almost like thinking of, the military cat, like, like thinking of the military casts as gender and kind of like how they, they almost identify with gender as like their military cast and then their sex is just their biological sex at any given time. And that can easily change as they mention as well. Yeah. And so this actually, one of the things I really like about this book that I think it does better than most military SF that I've read is that the military doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? The military mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. real world works alongside the State Department and USAID, which is the organization within the US government that's responsible for development work, and mm -hmm. the United States Treasury, and all these other organizations that we don't necessarily think about. And or the intelligence community as exactly, well. Exactly, right? And so the the while you spend most of the books with one or two, maybe three of the casts, um, you know, it, you get the, this much more comprehensive sense of that people go into these different services because they have different perspectives on the world and different tools that they find attractive. And mm -hmm. to somebody who works a lot with, you know, with the U.S. government, that feels very true, that people gravitate to different parts of the U.S. government because they want to fix problems in different ways and they see different problems in the world. Um, and they end up with really strong cultures as a result that are quite different. And um, mm. even in, in, you know, U.S. government, you'll often hear the sort of trite line is, you know, the Department of Defense is from Mars. The State Department is from Venus, which going back to gendered <laughs> language, like right, super, super wow. gendered right off the bat. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that's really interesting to think about in in this context where. I think you're right in some ways that uh, the role people are filling professionally is sort of more important in their identity construction than gender necessarily is or than sexuality necessarily is. Um, but at the same time that there are 
as someone who comes from a culture that does have these super gendered loadings that we do tend to project gender mm -hmm. onto them, even when I think the book actually does a, an interesting job of, of not being about gender in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's almost like the way I'm thinking of it is almost as like in this society, there are six genders and they you know are like which service that you're serving in as opposed to like two genders. And it has anything to do with your like biology in any way. Yeah. Um, again, it's not a complete coherent thought yet, but yeah. And I think there's also, we can get into this later, but there's a really interesting question about what about the people who aren't in one of these six groupings? Right. Um, right. That, yeah, I haven't even gotten to that in the book yet where I'm at. Yeah, and it 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 it's more of a role in some of the later books, um but it mm -hmm. is it is an interesting question about if there are these six groups that are serving and working in different ways, what about the people who aren't picking one of these six mm -hmm. ways of being and what are what are they like? And that's actually right. not something discussed a lot in any of the books, but is an interesting yeah. question to have in mind. Particularly, you know, right now there's a lot of conversations going on in the United States about civil military relations. And right. it's an interesting lens to, to read the books through. Well, and there's also this kind of interesting element of, and again, not trying to get too deep into the spoilers for the books, but like the bad guys for the books are folks who like use the same calendrical system, but slightly differently. Like they have a her heretical calendrical system. And there's something almost, you know, like the way it's spoken about by the characters as if there's some sort of like perversion there. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, it, it reads as, I mean, the word heretic is used frequently, exactly, right? Exactly. It's, and I think this is one of the other things that makes it feel a little fantasy ish to me is the extent mm -hmm. to oh, which yeah. mm -hmm. um, the, the oh, magic yeah. system is also a religious system and Definitely. that mm -hmm. the Definitely. role of ritual and the role of popular consensus behind ritual becomes incredibly important as the book goes on. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the cool ways in which the book does, you know, like going back to your point, Matt, of like treating, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, math can be a belief system. <laughs> you know, it's like there's or, no or real can, difference between like what math you're using and what belief system you're engaging in, like in this in this world, in, in this. Or you can case. just encode. You can encode different things mathematically. You can you can use math as a lens to understand different kinds of things in the same way that you can use an idea from another discipline in the same way that you can you can use, you know, uh, Mikhail Bakhtin's concept of defamiliarization to understand, you know, a piece of mathematical argument. You can use math to understand a piece of literature. There's nothing to, I mean, in fact, in fact, you should try to use as much as you can to, to think, do as much as you can. I think it also might, you know, just before we fully move away from like the gender stuff, I think it's because we didn't talk about this at all in like talking about Yoon Ha Lee's like author facts, but it's worth saying that he is a trans man and that this, I, I think this is part of why gender shows up the way it does in the books and part of why it's you know frankly like written so well and kind of so interestingly because it's something that like he has had to engage with personally in a very like difficult mm -hmm. way um and you know it's also worth you know pointing out like we're, we're using the the he him pronouns because that's how he identifies it's also when i believe when he published this book and when he published most of his science fiction writing he did not identify publicly as a man even if he did privately and so there's a you know you'll see his name show up on like best female science fiction authors and stuff like that and so if it you know if for any of our listeners like see that or confused by kind of what's going on i think it's just worth like just stating that really plainly yeah. because yeah. It's, it was confusing for us i think it's also yeah. worth pointing out 
the the reading experience of this novel was some I read it first um under she her pronouns and then discovered that it had publicly come out as being a man and it it did it didn't change how I read the book broadly but it did there were some nuances of it that became more more um salient mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's it's an interesting sort of fact to keep in mind because I do think it there's some subtleties in the book that are are I think important for for somebody who's cis to think about and mm, grapple with. Yeah. Right, right. And I think stuff like, you know, the main female character has to like share a mind and a body with a with a male character for a good chunk of the novel. Stuff like that is is, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know something about oh, the yes. author there. Yes, it um, does. Yeah, so sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to go back to that really quickly because oh, I fine. wanted to say no, that yeah. before we blew, blew through it because I think it's actually like the interesting and pertinent for the for the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's gender. very, very relevant. Absolutely, completely relevant. Uh, worth mentioning, especially because I myself on this podcast have misgendered Yoon Hali, and so I, you know, which I regret doing. I'll say again. Um, uh, oh, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that specifically so much as like it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, where are we going to this? Like gender has often been a thing that science fiction talks about. I mean, it's, it's actually one of the things that I have long loved about science fiction, even as a kid, like there was a lot of, you know, science fiction from the like seventies and eighties, the kind of new wave science fiction that plays with a lot of, you know, whether it's feminist or whether it's just more generally gender bendy. And a lot of it, I think from today's perspective is, you know, in some ways problematic because they were figuring out what even a lot of it is. And I think you go back to a lot of the feminist science fiction in particular and you get like you know feminist science fiction that was like good for women bad for trans people <laughs> right like like, like the kind good, of radical good feminist for straight thing. women and bad for queers totally totally yeah. or good for white women and bad for everyone else um you know and that that is a is you know partially There's because also- feminism at that time didn't take any sort of intersectional stance um but i do i do you know I think part of why we're talking or why I'm talking about gender so much in this podcast is because I've always been fascinated by this. And while I wouldn't necessarily like consider, you know, I'd consider myself like more or less cis at the same time. Like I always wonder, like, you know, if I had as a kid the ability to think through this stuff in the way that kids do now, like, well, you know, how much how much better at this would I be? Like how much of a better understanding of myself would I be? And I think that, the you know, the one place that ever afforded me that was science fiction. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of it's kind of cool to to be reading new science fiction that doesn't even better job of it if that that's really true i i really agree with that also and i was gonna i was gonna say that there's also a long tradition of cis white men trying to play in new spaces that are opened up by non-cis white men and not doing a very good job Mm -hmm. there's a very long i think when you as soon as you said new wave science fiction i thought of stephen donaldson who whose uh chronicles of thomas covenant unbeliever is a very well-known fantasy series that I think is in some sense trying to respond to some of this stuff and uh, extremely, extremely problematic. Um, Many, many, (laughs) many other examples. I mean, that's just one. You could go on and on and on about this forever. But so given this tradition of of cis white guys, you know, sort of screwing this up, I, I, you know, I, I, I know that I am not owed an explanation for things, but I sort of 
I, I humbly, you know, would would uh, right. would being, request being it. If, if I screw up, yes. If I screw up, you know, I, I would like to know about it. If 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 you if somebody is comfortable telling mm. me, that would be, I would appreciate that. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no. I, I like, you know, other people don't owe us fixing this or whatever. But I do think it's worth saying, like, we're here because we like this and because we want to learn more and recognize our kind of ignorance coming into it. Well, yes. I think the other thing yes. that's sort of useful here is this is one of the places where I feel my great generational age showing up. Um, Mm. This is something I see people who are younger than I am being much, much better at than I am. I I really find myself struggling with pronouns that even even despite my best intentions, right, that there there Mm. is just there are some pathways in my brain that are wired into gendered language when it doesn't need to be. Um, and so things like gender neutral pronouns still feel awkward to me and I'm still working Hmm. on it. And it's something that I see people 10 years younger than me, just dealing with a a lot more gracefully and having had these sort of lessons earlier than I did. And so on Hmm. one hand, it's something that makes me appreciate when people around me say things that I think are ignorant and stupid, and I don't know why they could possibly hold Hmm. these views. This is one of those areas where, where I'm reminded to be a little bit more humble um, mm. but also where I know there are lots of people who are much better at this than I am and I need to get better. Mm. I, I think that's very well put. That's very nicely said. So I think that the other thing to kind of mention here, like you, like you, we were talking about the fantasy versus science fiction thing. And the one thing that keep, kept coming up, like as, as I'm reading this as a new reader and someone who hasn't finished the novel yet, um, like when I, as I was getting through it, I was like, struck by the degree to which the mathematics felt like spells in in fantasy novels. And as someone too, I should say that like, as a kid, I like just read fantasy or just read science fiction. I was like, hey, fantasy bad. And obviously I don't, you know, whatever kind of thing now. I don't, I don't believe that, that, but I do think that that's really funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a little shit as a kid. What can I say? <laughs> well, cutie. Oh, you got better. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully in my thirties. Um, but yeah, but I think that there's, um, there is something that's like, that's fantasy obviously almost like science fantasy ish in the same way that like one of the books that this keeps reminding me of is um uh the book of the new sun which like when taken on its face is written as if it's a fantasy novel like the like the the stylistic genre is one of being fantasy Um, But when you really look at it and like look at like you look past the language that's being used and the way things are being talked about, it's actually like a really hard sci fi novel, but just like, you know, kind of like with this fantasy veneer, but kind of like, you know, kind of like sensibility placed on top of it. And I wonder, you know, if you guys like like how you would respond to something like that in regards to this novel, because I don't know, I like I'm coming at it like actually not knowing it feels like. Like sometimes I'm, it's almost like a, a a hologram. Like sometimes I'm reading it and it feels like spells, and sometimes I'm reading it and it feels like Ian Banks or something. And I, you know, I don't know which one it is. I I really like talking about genre with regard to this book because I think it's so, it's it's um, it's it's in this interesting position where it's sort of simultaneously kind of obviously one genre, and then also not at all. You know, on the one hand, mm-hmm. it's sort of very easy to just talk about it like a military SF book. 
and just to have a, have long conversations like that and you don't sort of you can you can easily kind of ignore all the aspects of it that might complicate that picture because there's a lot there already but on the other hand you know <laughs> the whole discussing the magic system the, the 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 technology system whatever you want to call it um i mean it reminds me more of brandon sanderson perhaps than than any other author even than yeah, Anne lucky in, in was, some ways i was thinking that too I, I i think that i would say yoon ha lee to me is a better writer than brandon sanderson but it's it sort of has the similar affect as a system it feels like a, a a set of rules that operates that that is constructed narratively and you know pre-narratively in a similar way to the way mm-hmm. that his systems are constructed um and I think both of them have written or spoken uh, at length about how they think about systems in a way that's sort of weirdly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of the point that Ellie made earlier about the, the way that culture is so rich in Nine Fox Gambit and the Machines of Empire series. This is something that Yoon Ha Lee does very well and does better than a lot of fantasy authors, or at least, at least a lot of the fantasy authors who are known for their magic system creation. Um, he creates a world that he, he is interested in enough different kinds of culture and enough different kinds of perspectives on culture that he brings together this set of tropes, set of foods, set of ways of talking, set of, you know, backgrounds that characters have and set of sets of relationships to family members that characters have that feels so much more uh, diverse and real than than something that that I think of from uh, a Brandon Sanderson, for example. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts, Ellie? Yeah, in some ways, one of the books that sort of came to mind for me thing is Anne McCaffrey's Pern books, right? Mm, Which mm, if you read the first couple books, you think you're in a fantasy world and you later discover that you're in a sci-fi world. Mm -hmm. Um, I love those books so much. Those are the like dragon writer books. Yeah, exactly. Where, where, you know, it starts out that you're in sort of a medieval-esque world and there are dragons and you're like, great, fine, I'm I'm safely in fantasy (laughs) world. Uh, And over, over, well... I guess does no spoilers extend to other books? Oh, they were written it's like thirty years ago. We're okay. It, it's yeah. tough. So it's it, tough. So they discover spaceship and realize that they are they are in fact part of a much broader world. And the later books are about sort of that connection. Hmm. But, but this book has, um, while the 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 I think the role of the mixing genres isn't the same in this book. I think it's doing some of the same subversion of expectations in some ways that, mm-hmm. um, you know, sci-fi and fantasy we talk about as being really distinct, but there are a lot of things about exploring the world you find yourself in and trying to make sense of the world that you find yourself in and often doing totally. that through the the mechanism of some sort of systematic approach, whether it's learning magic or learning how the spaceship flies. Um, there is that kind of systematic discovery feel that underpins both of them. And so I think part of what it is just this book is really poking at that that mm-hmm. particular aspect mm-hmm. of both genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, for me, one way to sort of understand this this set of questions is to think about it from the perspective of games very directly. And I definitely wanted to ask you about this, Ellie. Um, so for me, it's almost like it almost feels as though Yoon Holly wanted <coughs> Yoon Holly wanted to write a military science fiction book, and then wanted to make there be a complicated game in the middle of that book as a way of understanding how the military functions, and and. And that game, you know, you can understand it as being similar to a a spell system because there are a lot of fantasy novels that have games at their heart. 
Um, mm-hmm. But you can also understand it as simply a, 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 another way of modeling space combat, which very often is not described that well. Like it's almost it's almost the case to me that like hard the hard SF military tradition when they describe space combat, it almost feels like they just pick a war and they use the terminology of yeah, that war. Yeah. Whereas this I, is more like... but space or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Otter or, Harrington or is... Or it's the Battle a, of Midway. Yeah. Or, right, you know, whatever. or it's Calvary in space or whatever it is. Right, right, or right. Or dogfighters book, in the case yeah, of like Star Wars yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Whereas this book, by contrast, wants to invent a future war or invent mm-hmm. a new game mm-hmm. that isn't a previous war. Yeah, and so I think this is where the the way I have come at games is probably relevant. So... I played hobby games as a kid some, um, but I wasn't, I didn't self-identify as a gamer in big capital letters. And so for me, because games are a professional analytic and educational tool, first and foremost, and sort of the way I'm dealing with it, I actually am usually thinking about games as models of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am either trying to communicate my own model of the world when I'm designing a game for education or I'm trying to, to understand how the world works and the game is a, is a tool for me to access it in the same way that, um, you know, a math equation would be in statistics that, you, you know, you could run a regression or you could do a game and they take different types of data and they get you different types of analysis on the back end. Um, and so I, to me, I, th- I think that's, that's right, but I think it's as a form of world building, right? Um, the, the game here is is sort of I, I don't I would be very interested to know whether the calendrical system came first or the plot came first or they co-developed mm-hmm. uh, and I mm-hmm. haven't seen anything I written. actually I I I, I asked you and that exi- that very question hmm. at, at an event I don't remember his answer um oh no okay well maybe that's... we can poke him on Twitter and <laughs> right. hope that yeah he's... I'm sure he would <laughs> please, I'm sure he please, would sir, respond can you help <laughs> um, yeah I was I, yeah, sorry. Oh, I was gonna say it's also it's sort of an interesting question. Different game designers work differently, um, and I am the type of game designer who I, I'm there for the rules and the interactions and and the system mm. building aspect of it. Um, the, not all game designers work that way, and so I I am in part curious about how much of this is that the description of games here resonates really strongly with the way I happen to design games. And so, you know, Adrian, I don't know if your game design experience works in sort of a different way. Um, and this might be an easier conversation to have once once everybody's read the description of games yeah. in this book. Um, yeah, I actually haven't gotten to any like games specifically in the book yet. It's all very like straightforward, like military strategy as opposed to like game playing in particular. So I will <laughs> defer to the next episode. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be a, a fun thing to talk about. I wanted I wanted to ask you, Ellie, uh, specifically about um, the, the 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 idea of how battles are described and and how fighting works in different kinds of science fiction. Yeah, and and how that relates to how you think about fighting when you think about <laughs> fighting games and stuff. I mean. Is there a thread of military SF that maybe makes more sense in the way that it does this? Or do they all make no sense? Or (laughs) how does this book fit into it? Yeah. So the first thing I should say is that I work with the military. I have not been in the military and have not actually fought myself. Um, 
And so I have a weirdly attenuated view of what mm. what mm-hmm. fighting is like. Um, and I think one thing that I really value about this series of books is that you see fighting from lots of different perspectives. Um, so the opening chapter that Adrian mentioned where you're you're sort of on the ground in close combat to me reads the way um, reading memoirs of of soldiers or deployed journalists who have been on the ground in infantry fighting feels like. And so in some ways, you know, yeah, there's people melting from weird sci-fi effects rather than just, you know, the current right. modern weapons like of war. Storms that are maybe math, that are maybe spells that are unclear. <laughs> right. But, it, but it, you know, if you read... If you read those accounts versus you read Mm. some of the great memoirs that have come out or even some of the the journalists reporting, um, you know, there's 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 some common threads there from sort of a tactical perspective of what fighting is like. The later parts of the book, though, you have a very different perspective on fighting. You've you've zoomed out. Um, you know, within, within military analysis, we talk about different levels of war. So there's the Mm -hmm. tactical fight where you're talking about tens of people versus the operational fight where you're talking about thousands versus the strategic and political, um, where you're, you're not even talking about the fight at all. Right. Right. You're You're not even talking about people anymore so much as like goals and and objectives. Right. And and you see all three levels in this book, which is one of the things I really like about it, um, is that you get all three. Um, I tend to work at the higher end. I work in in strategic and operational. Um, I'm actually really more of a political analyst who happens to to have found her home in defense work rather than a true military junkie. So I would also say from that perspective, I'm sort of talking outside of my lane. Um, I think within sci-fi, often there's the book is doing one or it's doing the other. You're either down in the tactics, you're you're in red shirt world, you're you're riding along with an mm. infantry grunt. Or you're with the captain of the starship and you're seeing these multi-ship space engagement battles um, that tend to feel more naval, right? Mm-hmm. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that I think is interesting in this book is that uh, the, the main character is an infantry officer who is then moved up uh, into what's traditionally the more naval-coded military right. service role, right? So there's a really interesting conversation to be had about... Um, military sci-fi pulls from some service traditions and not others, mm. right? And so we've talked about that a little bit, right? So we talk mm-hmm. about fighters, dog fighters, that's an Air Force thing versus mm-hmm. infantry where you're, you're a Marine or you're an Army officer versus the captain of a ship where it's much more naval references. And you see this in ranks often, right? Different mm-hmm. books will use different military rank systems. Right, um, it would be like admirals when it's talking about like spaceships often. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right? And I think there's a really interesting question of why someone was asking me about uh so for those of you who don't follow anything military related um there is a proposal right now that's been put forward to create an additional service that will be the space force right um and there's lots of very serious questions about whether this is a good idea and how it would be implemented and to what end um but beyond all of that that sort of um practical stuff there's also been a lot of sort of fun pop culture joking conversations about it and one of them is about you know given that sci-fi has sort of complete disrespect for military service ranks and culture (laughs) like does space force just take on the like 
bog standard military nomenclature or does it adopt one of the service nomenclatures or mm-hmm. what's the blending look like here? yeah i think i think the admiral equivalent should be a moth obviously i mean <laughs> so so if anybody out there like want there are like entire books of military analysis written about the star wars universe um mm, i'm bet. here for that so, i'm so, always here for that yeah i mean it, I, there's Grand so we did Tarkin. get to Star Wars after all. We, we always get to Star Wars. Uh. <laughs> inevitably, inevitably. Yeah. Have you guys read? Have you guys read? There's this great piece of fanfic, you know, rolling around somewhere about the logistics of constructing the Death Star. Oh, I I oh, don't I think, think I've I, read this like one, really but I've heard of it. Story. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's I, a I short story. I, yeah, I did yeah, read yeah. that. Right. Yeah. yeah delicious uh, yeah there there is there is plenty of, of military officers writing about basically current military issues through the lens of star wars um, right so so cool yeah so so I, I definitely think there's a conversation that runs both ways um you know one thing i didn't see in the bio um is whether yun holly has either is is a prior service member or has fa- clearly he has spent some time in military culture because mm-hmm. th- yeah. I believe yeah but, but so it wasn't I, clear I, what I, it was this is another thing that, that uh, I heard about from him at, uh, at an event and that uh, he has family uh, that served um, specifically uh, in Korea um, and uh, I don't remember what service and I also don't remember on what side Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe it was in the Korean war and I believe, um, that this had a, a big impact on, on Yoon Lee and, and has resulted in Yoon Lee considering questions about military ethics from a very young age because they were, you know, related to his family and related to issues that, especially for people of Korean descent, the Korean war, I think is, you know, it's a civil war. And so it, it, it has yielded it has forced people into a lot of the kinds of ethical dilemmas that only civil wars produce. And those ethical dilemmas, in addition to being um, kind of incredibly rich fodder for philosophers, are also incredibly horrifying to confront and, and, have, and leave like, you know, a lot of emotional damage in their wakes. So I think that from what he said at this event, I gather that that kind of stuff and that kind of thinking has been a big has had a big influence but yeah that makes sense yeah i mean it it sort of strikes me as as a book that's written by someone who's very familiar with uh military culture but probably hasn't been in the military to my knowledge he has not yeah yeah Yeah. as somebody who sort of comes from a similar perspective that i think that was one of the reasons the book resonated with me is that um you know it it, it, there's a little bit of that sort of liminal space Mm -hmm. that i felt felt like home (laughs) (laughs) cool is there anything else in particular ellie that that you had like for people kind of coming in and reading this book for the first time like me like something you might you might say to them that we haven't hit so far i don't know um i i do i think that you know as i was thinking about where this book uh sort of positioned itself versus some of the other stuff that that you guys have read earlier. Um, I think it might be worth saying this is a shorter, lighter read than, oh, yep. than some of the, the other books that you guys have picked. So if you, if you're worried about the timeline, this, this is a great Labor Day read. 
Um, (laughs) I think I read it the first time on a train. Like it's got that sort of, you know, it, there's a, there is a strong plot. It's propulsive. You, you, Mm -hmm. you read it along and, and it's like a standard sci-fi novel length, right? You're not, this is not a multi-week project to, to complete. We both Um, struggled to finish Nomon in time, our last book. And this is not going to be a struggle for me. (laughs) Despite our ability, also despite our, our our desire to convert everything into the meatiest possible questions, um, you know, one need not think in that way reading this book. It's just fun. It's mm-hmm. super fun. It's super super fun, and it's a it's it's a good you know. I I think in in certain ways I I would you know in that particular way it reminds me of Romy Futch in that it's just both super fun and also has all these interesting questions, but can be read at either level. It's not like hitting you over the head with the questions at any point. You can just sit down and enjoy the cool like military battles and and stuff going on. Yeah, though I will also say I think this book is one that um, I at least as somebody who doesn't read a lot of military sci-fi found really accessible. Um, mm. We've talked a lot about the sort of military aspects of it, um, but it is it is a book that's interested in culture and gender and in world building sort of qua world building um there are some just really funny passages if you've ever (laughs) spent any time in a bureaucracy there's there's some really (laughs) fantastic running gags going through the book that that just um and so you're talking about the politics and the post reads is going to be like really fun and interesting yeah but but I think the point, you know, often we talk about diversity in sci-fi as being sort of a, a good in itself. But I think one of the things I really value about this book is how inclusive it is. It is a book that wants to be accessible to a lot of people and people who might normally not find themselves feeling welcome in, you know, a book that has the description military sci-fi. I think mm. I hope we'll find more for them in this book. Um, I mean, I both have inter- so far. Yeah. And and. You know, that it takes military service seriously um, and also is serious about the, the consequences and the military ethics of it. It um, is making some quiet points about, you know, the space that should be open for, for people of different uh, genders and of different sexual orientations. Um, but that's not what the book is about. Um, it's making points about non-Western culture. It's not what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that last one, maybe... Maybe it is what the book is about, <laughs> but but that, that there's there is a space that's open there for people to to access, or at least that's how I I found it. I I, I mean I I mean I'm one of those people, and I have two definitely. So yeah, I agree with all of those things. Well, with that, uh, thanks again, Ellie, for coming Thank on you. and talking yeah, with us. This is me. super fun. I, we haven't done our usual book club in a while, so this is. <laughs> We're over. <laughs> I, 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 I was telling our our sort of fourth member of the book club that this has almost turned into the like substitution for the fact we haven't done one of these in a while. Is <laughs> oh, listening yeah. to book club. We should and have. I, I uh, I keep almost writing you guys emails of all the interjections that I would have put in because I'm just so used to like, this is a conversation and I chirp in too. So it's fun to be a part of it this time. No, it's always very feel fun free for us to read those. I, you. you know, oh, I, I love getting those and, you know, <laughs> reading yeah, those interjections. And, and, so Yeah, and you should come back too. Definitely. <laughs> well, well, we'll have you back in a, in a few weeks. Thank you again. Um, thanks, thanks, Matt, as always. I don't know. I've 
Thank you. I'm so bad at Thank doing you. this outro. Thank you, oh, you're quite welcome. Um, I feel like it's the running joke is I just don't know how to outro this podcast. So anyway, uh, Music WJ, you're hearing it right now. He's on SoundCloud. Google it. Uh, Noah Bradley does our art. He's at NoahBradley.com. Uh, print stuff like that. Uh, speaking of like talking to us, uh, we're on Twitter at at SpectologyPod. Uh, or you can email us at spectologypod at gmail.com. And we really do like love that. Uh, you know, tell us what we got wrong. Tell us what you thought of the book. Tell us why you didn't read the book. Tell us why you did. Like any of that stuff. We, we really appreciate all kinds of different comments. Um, if you're going to be mean, keep it short. But, you know, if you're going to be helpful, keep it long. <laughs> um, and we, we love we love to, to talk about that stuff. And then um, also, and, you know, I haven't plugged this in a while, but... Um, anyone who wants to review us on iTunes, that's a great way to help other people know about the show and sharing it and stuff. Um, we, we really appreciate that because we like talking to people. That's why we're doing it. Um, yeah. So with that, thanks again, guys. Um, and I will talk to you all next time. Peace. Bye.